Well, good morning, Highland Park. Good to be back with you folks. Um, I'm glad you all have tempered the weather, cooled it down for our, our summer experience here, and uh, stopped the rain for a little while. But anyway, good to be back with you to share this time. I left my remote down there. Brother Kenny, you want to? I can't talk without that thing. It's like your husband's probably no good at home without their remote either. Is that right, women? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I, I have to carry one with me all the time. All right, we. Hello, darling. <laughs> I love technology. Anyway, we have, a, we have a lot of ground to cover in the time that we have in celebrating this. And so I want to begin. Many, many of you may recall if you were here last Sunday that I told you I was boarding a plane in the evening to fly home. from My, my last remaining uncle had passed away, and so I went back to be a part of that memorial service, and as I was prepping for this week and knowing, knowing that we were going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper, then I, I found a really appropriate way to tell you more about him. And so let me, let me introduce you to, uh, to, to my uncle. This was, this was Lon L. Brown, known as Lonnie to many of his friends. He was born June the 2nd, 1918. Just do the math. Passed away June the, the 20th um, of this year. And uh, the family gathered and celebrated his, his 100th birthday. Um, but Lonnie was a, that, that picture of him represents really who he was. He was not a drugstore cowboy. Now, some of you know what that is. That's the, guy who, that's the guy who buys all the clothes but's never been on a horse in his life. Well, well my Uncle Lonnie was the true blue uh, cowboy. My whole life, um, seeing him, I remember the cowboy boots the cowboy hat, the suspenders, and the big belly. I mean, he was a real, real, real cowboy. And uh, uh, he, right up until the last few years, he, he owned horses and he owned donkeys or mules. And he loved to work those things. And he loved to go on the trail rides uh, over his lifetime. It's like his passion. He, he's, he's holding the, the stars and stripes there because he was a World War II veteran. I, I learned at his memorial service that after Pearl Harbor, he went down like a couple other people and enlisted to go into the military. And he served in uh, the Marshall Islands and was awarded the Bronze Star. I mean, all kinds of cool things we learned about him. I, I heard from my older brother, who, who's in the last few years has spent a lot of time with him, that, that when he was stationed um, in the, the South Pacific, that he was bivouacked with, with like five other guys. And, and, and the Army gave them a ration of beer, a six-pack of beer every week. I don't know if some of the rest of you remember that, but anyway, they gave all the men a six-pack of beer. The other five guys did not drink, and so they gave my Uncle Lonnie all of their beer for the week. It gets better, okay? He had no problem with that. He was born the year Prohibition started, but he had no problem with that. And while he was there, um, it was the only thing that he drank. He was the only one that didn't get sick the whole time he was there. I'm thinking I've, I've known a few other Baptists that understood that prescription as well. So anyway, <laughs> I don't know what you're laughing about. You know those people too. So, so I, I go back and, and uh, for the service and see family. Um, I haven't seen in a long time uh, cousins and, and, and nieces and nephews. and um, Just anyway, to, to, to be time with family. Well, my younger brother, who's a pastor was the one that officiated his, at his memorial service, his celebration of life, assisted by somebody else. Well, well, my uncle was one of those that over our whole lifetime, I never remembered him going to church. It just wasn't his thing. He was married to one of my dad's sisters. My dad had four older sisters. 
And so he was married to, to, to one of those. But, but Uncle Lonnie never, never went to church. After my, my aunt died just a few years back, one of my uncle's great-great-nieces introduced him to a cowboy church. That was perfect for him. And he started going to that cowboy church, and he fell back in love with the church and the Lord. And so his pastor was there as a part of the service, and so we, we had a happy story to put on the end of his celebration. So we're at the funeral chapel, we wrap it up, and so it comes time to go from the chapel out to the graveside, which fortunately was very close to the building. And so they, the, the, the men that, it was primarily nephews and, and great-nephews and great-great-nephews that were his pallbearers, um, they, they picked up his, his coffin and, and, and took it outside, if we can get this cooperate, and loaded it onto a wagon pulled by a horse. And, and I, you know, everybody there is like, that is the coolest thing in the world. What more appropriate way to say so long? You don't say goodbye to a believer. You say so long to a real, real cowboy. And, and went out to, to the graveside there and and I put this expanded picture because you can't make it out. But, but the lady at the far right of the screen there was his own remaining sibling, his sister. And she's got to be well in her 90s. And I, got to, I hadn't seen her in 50 years. But I swear, she looked the same way now as she looked 50 years ago. That sort of happens with old people. Anyway, you don't get that. But anyway, uh, and so we were there. And I was asked to officiate at the graveside and do the graveside portion and had a few final words. And so he was laid to rest next to Zig Ziglar. Now, if you're an old person, you know who, Zig, who Ziggy was, a very inspirational Christian man who was a part of First Baptist Church Dallas for years and part of Preston Wood. But anyway, he was laid to rest there. I, I was thinking in, in preparation for today and, and our celebrating the, the supper together as a part of this message that we did justice, the family did justice to my Uncle Lonnie in saying goodbye. Those men in their cowboy boots and their cowboy hats that showed up with a a cattle trailer on the funeral home parking lot to unload the horse and unload the wagon so that he could be taken there to his temporary resting place until the resurrection when we look forward to seeing him. So in, in preparation and thinking through this whole business that, that we, we come today, and, and this is my first and perhaps my only time, to, to be a part of a service in which you do what you do so often, and that is celebrate the Lord's Supper. And um, if you're... If you've been around Baptist churches, I'm not going to assign a number of years. I can't go high enough for some of you. Um, you know that there are things that you've, do, you've done so often and so frequently that the challenge is to keep it meaningful over the duration of time. It's sort of like when, when you first, um, for, for you married people, when you first started courting your, the love of your life. Just the sight of them thrilled your heart. Just the, you know, the touch of them yeah, caused your heart to race. And just the kiss was always passionate. But then something happened. You got married and now, you know, what are you laughing at? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Some of you are past the 60-year mark together. Uh, the only chill that you get when you touch each other is your, your flesh feels clammy. And you say, well, you know, it's a... It, it, gives you a sort of a different kind of thrill. And, and so one of my, <laughs> you feel inspired already? I, I get that. So, so one of the, I recognize because doing pastoral ministry and pastoring churches for, you know, over four decades, that the things that you do as a matter of course, it, it's hard to keep those fresh and, and to do justice to those. And so uh, at, at, at Kenny's permission, I'm going to blame him. So um, 
you know, I asked how y'all do this, and he said, well, this way we do it, but you can do it any way you want. So um, I started to send somebody down to the black church down the street to get some smelling sauce in case we need that, but just bear with us, and, and we're going to do, do justice to this. So follow along as we read today's text and, and walk through this service together. You know this scene is taken from Matthew's Gospel, the upper room, where this whole thing started. While they were eating, Jesus and his disciples, and, and there were some women present too, you need to understand. Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There we go. It's sort of interesting, if, if you're familiar with the Gospels, that the reason I chose Matthew's Gospel as our sort of our jumping off place is because he was the guy who was there. He was one of the, the gospel writers who was actually present in that upper room with Jesus on that occasion. Now, it's, it's curious that uh, when you go back and read, John, uh, the apostle, was actually there as well. And when you read John's gospel, John, um, he goes on for chapters talking about the upper room experience. And yet he doesn't mention the celebration of the supper. It strikes me as saying. Now, now, you may be surprised that much of John's gospel is the account of what took place in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. Now, I picked uh, this picture of da Vinci's famous uh, painting of, of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, uh, because it's familiar to you, but also because it represents things that actually aren't true. <laughs> if you know anything about cultural history, you know that back then with Jesus and his disciples, they didn't pull up a chair and park their feet under a table. They ate inclining or declining on the floor. Now, there's a reason that we don't do that anymore is because at least they could get up after they got through eating. I think for some of us that might be, that might be a challenge. And, and this, this painting was actually on a wall. It was a mural on a wall that, um, uh, and, and that, that they didn't respect. And at some point they put a door in that wall and they actually cut out a, a part of the table right there in the middle. And, and so this is sort of a repaired uh, depiction of that. But I wanted to use this as, as our backdrop in talking about these, these events around Jesus because I, I want this to be an experience that, that really is an experience of worship and renewal. It's not just something that we do because it's on your calendar to do it. This is, you know, this is the first Sunday of the quarter, and so we do the Lord's Supper. I, I want to avoid that, and so after years of ministry, I said, well, how do you do that to incorporate it and keep it fresh? So if you'll indulge me, we'll walk through this experience together, and hopefully you'll, you'll value and appreciate it as well. First, we do justice by, by removing confusion. By removing confusion. Now, many of you um, have been around here a long, 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 long time. And for you, this is, this is life in the spirit. This is life as a spiritual family. This is life shared and as a journey as a church. But everybody in your life and around you in the world doesn't share that experience. People that come from liturgical backgrounds, while they may do something that's akin to this... They don't understand it in the same way. And so one of the ways that, that we do justice to this experience and sharing this, this moment of celebrating the Lord's Supper is by removing any issues of confusion. We want to get everybody on the same page. 
Uh, first is the confusion of that of transubstantiation. Now, uh, some of you know that I've already garnered the reputation as being a storyteller, you know, and, and, and I'm, I don't come across as sounding re- really theological, so I decided to give you all some big theological terms today just to let you know I know these things, and, and in course they actually serve a purpose. You see, people that come from a liturgical background, and particularly but not exclusively a Catholic background, have been raised to believe this is true about the celebration of what we call the Lord's Supper. Now, now after the events, we, we know that originally what? It was a celebration of Passover. Uh, we, we all know the story. In my quiet time right now, I happen to be back in the, in the book of Exodus, and I just in the last couple of days re- reread these events when, when God was delivering uh, Israel from Egyptian slavery, and he used the ten plagues to do that. And the last plague was what? The death of the firstborn, not just of people, but of even animals. And the only ones protected were the Israelites who were given a prescription for doing so. That, that fateful night in Egypt, the angel of death was supposed to pass through the streets and, and take the firstborn. And Israel was given instructions, slay a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, and take the blood of that lamb and what? Paint it on the lentils, the doorpost of your house, so that when the angel of death comes through, it will do what? It will pass over that house. And so they did that, and sure enough, it happened, and they were spared the loss of that firstborn. And it was given to them as a commemorative celebration. Israel was told that from now on, do this. It was a week of eating unleavened bread that, you know, that culminated in the celebrating of the Passover where families together or neighbors together would get together, and they would close the doors, and they would eat the Passover lamb. So we know that Jesus at this point in, in Matthew's gospel or in John's gospel, he's already been with his disciples, what, three years? At about the age of 30, he started ministering. He called these disciples together with him. And, and we know that Jesus, at least once a year, because it was an annual celebration, gathered with his disciples somewhere, and they what? They celebrated Passover together. So on this occasion, wasn't anything new about it. Jesus said, it's that time of the year. Go, let's go. There's a place. Let's go and gather there, and we will celebrate the Passover. And so they celebrated the Passover, and, and the words that we read were the words that he used. He said, okay, guys. Uh, I'm going to do something that, you, that your, your descendants are going to despise and they're going to quote me from now on. We're going to do it the way we've never done it before. Okay, just, just get that out of your system. He said, up until now, you know, this was about a lamb that you, you, you took and you, you butchered and you ate. But from this point forward, it is a lamb, but the lamb is me. And this cup was about the blood of that lamb, but now this cup henceforth will be about this lamb. That lamb was slain every year. This lamb will be slain but once. From that point, because the New Testament was an unfolding document that that spread over the next century, with with John being the last writer toward the end of that century, then then those early believers were left to try to figure out how to do and what to do and when to do and where to do, etc. Now, if you come back tonight, we're going to talk about a little bit more about that, but just not this morning. And, and so over time, it's like, well, what does that mean? And, and, and how do we translate that into our lives and define meaning? And one of the questions was, well, what, what really happens in that moment when Jesus said that and we do this on an annual basis and, and, and we do that? You know, what really happens? And Christian writers for those first few centuries talked about what really happens in that moment. And, and it really wasn't until the 13th century in the 1200s that the Catholic Church sort of codified what it meant and they called it, what, transubstantiation. Now, if you were raised as a Baptist, you may not know what that means, but for them it meant that the elements, that that bread literally becomes the flesh of Jesus when you ingest it. 
Because Jesus said, you're eating my body, and if you eat my body, you don't have any part of me. And that cup, that juice, or that wine, in some cases, literally becomes the blood, becomes my blood. And so, so writer said, so it's transubstantiation that is no longer a wafer, no longer a piece of matzah, no longer grape juice or wine or whatever the case might be. It literally becomes, and we call that transubstantiation because it's becoming something else. When I was a seminary student, I, I worked as a security guard for Champlin Oil, and, and one of the computer techs that used to come through on a weekly basis and was there to service the PCs, and if we had a problem, of course, they weren't PCs, they were mainframes, excuse me, we're a few years removed. Um, and so here's this guy, and, and I found out because I dialogued with him that he was a Catholic, he's not just a Catholic, but he was an ordained Catholic teacher in the local diocese. And I'm going, okay, I have a captive audience here. And so we're in the break room one night. I said, hey, I, you know, I got, I got a question for you. You teach, and so you represent what's true. I said, you believe in transubstantiation? And he said, well, yeah. I said, okay, what type of blood does it become? He said, what do you mean? I said, is it A? Is it B? Is it O? And he goes, oh, no, 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 that's not what we mean. I went, either you do or you don't. But that's what transubstantiation is. And some that come, because Jesus never said that. Jesus the time. Okay. Then there's that of consubstantiation. Another good word, big word. Martin Luther comes along. Uh, leading up to the Reformation, a couple of hundred years after the events that took place of, of codifying transubstantiation. And, and, and Luther, who was, he was a, he was a, ordained Catholic priest. He was a teacher. Uh, he was a monk. And he had a radical conversion experience where he met Jesus. And it was never his plan to start a movement. His plan was, I'm going to stay a part of this and we're just going to bring Scripture back in to the heart of what we do and what we're about. And so he continued to teach. He said, we need to dialogue about what the Bible actually says. And one of the things he was convinced of, that transubstantiation wasn't true. It doesn't literally become something else. But what happens is that, that God is present in the elements. It is the elements, it's the substance of the elements with, word clone, with God there. And so he and Lutherans and many mothers don't believe in transubstantiation. They believe in consubstantiation, that God is in the elements. But the Bible never says that. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on record as saying, guess what, food does not bring you closer to God because God does not occupy things. God occupies people. This place is a special sacred place, but God doesn't live here. He doesn't wait for you to show up on Sunday and say, Hey, what did you do all week? It's about time you were coming back and see me. God doesn't occupy things. God occupies people. So we, need to, we do justice by removing the confusion about what it is. The element remains an element. We celebrate it because we're doing as Jesus said to what? Remember what he did for us. That we might know him and have a relationship with him. And get look, to look forward to spending eternity with him. Number two is we do justice by clarifying language. Clarifying language. Now this is a challenge. And you know I'm from Texas. When I say cowboys, I might mean the, the hat kind or the football kind, okay? Language is an interesting thing. It's not just regional. It's, it's not just uh, particularly close. It, it can be generational. In this room, if you ask an 80-year-old what work means, and you ask a 20-year-old what works means, you'll be using the same word. You will not be using the same dictionary. Hear, hear? Yeah, you got that. You got that. So we need to clarify language. First, in, in not making this event sacramental. Now, that's another word that you hear bantered about, and, and some of you may be familiar with it. For, for some of you, you may not be. Um, 
when, when I was in Maryland, um, our state Baptist paper put out an issue one time. There was a picture of a, one of the new church plants that was doing a baptism. And the caption said, ex-church um, engaging in the sacrament of baptism. And I went, what, what, what I called the, the executive director of the state convention. He was a friend of mine. I said, David, David, since when did we, we, we become sacramental? He said, what do you mean? I said, in your paper, there's a picture, and they're calling this a sacrament. He goes, I don't know how that happened. I said, well, if somebody would read this thing. I don't normally, but I just happen to this time, and you need to straighten that out. You see, sacramentalism, the word sacrament means a means of dispensing grace. And, and in, in, in liturgical churches, they will have more than one sacrament. Marriage is a sacrament. Lord's Supper is a sacrament. Baptism is a sacrament. They have all these, these sacraments. It's, it's a means by which they receive grace. It's a meritorious system. Listen, if it's meritorious, it's not grace. Now, do we not believe in, in a sacrament? Oh, absolutely we do. That sacrament's called Jesus. Because he is the only means of grace in our relationship with God. And there's nothing meritorious about our relationship with him. As a matter of fact, if anything, we're disqualified from knowing him. And he overlooked that in his atonement for us. So we don't make this sacramental. If you take this, it will not make you closer to God. <laughs> Trust me. Some other things may happen that we'll get to in just a moment. B. B. In making it a celebrative memorial... A celebrative memorial. Now, some of you get this, and that's what you've always done. But that's what when Jesus said, "Listen, this is something to be celebrated." We've always you've always done it this way. We're not doing it that way going forward. And this is what I want you to do. Look at what the Apostle Paul had to say about this. And and this is a Jew's Jew. He'd all he'd done that Passover thing too, up until he met Jesus. For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." I don't know how you know what point I realize it, but you know when you do this, it's supposed to be a proclamation of victory. You're proclaiming the Lord's. It's not just about what happened back then; it's about what's going to happen. He said, "I'm not going to eat this again. What until I eat it with you in the kingdom?" It's about our proclaiming to one and all that we're not just celebrating what has been. I'm celebrating what's going to be. We're celebrating the fact that He didn't just die and leave, but He is coming back. And I don't know about you, but it can't happen too soon. I'd just soon pass another April the 15th, if it'd be okay with y'all, and just go on to glory. You see, Paul, when we talk, he said this was a, a moment to be celebrated, and that's what this needs to be, a, a commemoration of what Christ did. And, and, and that ought to be a, a fresh moment and experience for us. And we do justice by proper preparation, by proper preparation. Let's finish what Paul said here. He said, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are sick, and a number sleep, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be 
judge. You, you think it might be important that we understand what Jesus intended us to do and to be when we celebrate this? Not be cavalier about it, not be giddy about it, but not make it something that it was not. To say, you know, when we do this, this, this little cracker, it's still a cracker. And this juice is still juice, but they represent the most awesome event in human history. The event in which God had become flesh. And then that flesh, as was pointed out to me by one of your deacons after the first service, is that, you know, Jesus got to, to say it was the Passover. It's a different kind of Passover. But he didn't get to experience the Passover because he was the one that died to make it happen. And for us to be moved by that, that memory and that recall. And Paul says, listen, before you run off into this, you need to check and make sure that not only are you doing it in a right way, but you're doing it for the right reason. And it, brings, it, it really brings to, to, to mind a, a, a couple of questions. This proper operation is through self-examination. He said, let everybody, what? Examine themselves. Now, Baptists, you know, we, we, we may poo-poo somebody else's business on confession, but we're big about confession, too. I hope you know that. We're big about confessing somebody else's sin. If you don't believe that's true, just get on social media. You know, you're for one and all out there. Self-exam- Paul, Paul says, listen, there, this is really easy. You're not perfect, I'm not perfect. When we come to celebrate this great thing that Christ has done for us, take your breath, pause, slow down, and ask a couple of questions. Question number one is, do I know him? Do I know that I know that I know that what he's talking about I've experienced? That when he died on that cross, I know that that was my cross. <laughs> and when they put that spear in his side, that was my spear. And when they laid him in that grave, that was my grave. He didn't do it for him. He did it for me. Have I experienced the forgiveness and the atonement because of what he did as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world once for all time? Do I know that I know that I know that I know him? So when I celebrate this, it's not that I might get God, but it's I might celebrate God in Jesus Christ. And the second examination is, well, if that's true and if I know that's settled business, then, then do I have unconfessed sin in my life right now? Because Christ didn't die to make us religious. (laughs) He died to make us alive. And he didn't die just so we could show up and be pious on Sunday. He died that we could be transformed to be made like him in holiness and sacredness and sanctification. And, And because we're flesh and blood and still human, then we live with that challenge of temptation and falling short. And Paul would say, listen, this is easy too. Self examine and ask, Lord, do I have unconfessed sin in my heart that I need to deal with before you? Before I celebrate the supper. And so the second part of this is through confession. And that's confessing to him that you know you need him to purify and you to, to cleanse you. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to invite you to bow your heads. This is a part of the, the, the Lord's Supper going forward. We're going to incorporate some music in this. And I, what I want you to do is the, is the music plays. I just want you to settle any business you have in your heart right now. If you don't know the Lord, this is a time to say, Jesus, I know you died for my sins. I commit myself to you. I want to be your disciple. I want to experience your grace. If that's business long settled for you and you say, Lord, reveal to me the sin that's unconfessed that I might confess it and get it right before I proceed and take part of the supper. You take care of your business with God as others around you are doing the same. Father, in this moment, we lay ourselves before you. First, Father, if there are among us those that have not confessed their faith in Jesus, that this could be a great time when they can understand what true liberty is about, 
when they experience yours by the forgiveness of sin. Hear their prayer. Honor the desire of their heart as you enter into relationship with them. For most of us, Lord, that we need to simply confess known sin. We need for your spirit to reveal unknown sin that we might confess that. Father, we want to be forgiven. We want to be clean. We want to be pure. So as we receive these elements and take part, and we celebrate what Jesus Christ did, Lord, we want to do so integrity and purity and holiness. Forgive us of our sin. Wash us anew in that fountain filled with blood that we might truly celebrate what grace is all about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If the deacons would come now and distribute...